This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who just wants Esther Wojcicki to adopt me, and then I'll be really successful. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, obviously, is Esther Wojcicki, a journalist and educator whose last name might sound familiar to listeners of this show. One of her daughters, Ann Wojcicki, is the CEO of 23andMe, and another daughter, Susan Wojcicki, is the CEO of YouTube. Both of them have been on this podcast several times. And her third daughter, Janet, is a well-known epidemiologist. Now Esther has written a new book appropriately titled How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. Since they were very little, she trusted her kids to help care for one another. You give them opportunities to do things actually around the house. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not a servant. They're they're part of the family. Mm-hmm. You know, Susan was busy folding diapers at the age of two. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she was taking care of Janet when she was three. Mm-hmm. They worked with me. She's also a well-known journalism instructor at a high school here in Silicon Valley. Through word of mouth, her initial class size of 19 grew to 30 students, then 50, then 70. I kept growing and growing and growing. And of course, the administration wanted to know what I was doing in that class. I right. Mean, what are you giving those kids? Free pizza or something? <laughs> and so, no, it turns out I was giving them freedom. That freedom. was the key. Esther, welcome to Recode Decode. Very excited to be here. I know. Good. Yes, I'm so... Very. Very. So we've. How long have we known each other? Like forever. Like where did forever. we meet? Forever. Before you were so famous. Like I'm you not are now. famous, oh, yes. Esther. You're, I'm, you're I'm tech famous. That's very yeah. different than regular famous. But in any case, when, when did we meet? Back way back when, right? Maybe at least maybe ten years ago. Twenty. Twenty. I'm sorry to tell you, twenty. Oh my god. In the beginnings of Google, right? Yes. Beginnings. Of, actually, we met in 2000. In 2000, like when Google was starting. When to get Google big. was starting. Right, and yes. you were you were you're the mother of Susan Wojcicki, who was one of the original people they founded it in her garage, essentially. Right. And so we met because we were very interested in journalism, and you taught journalism. Let's talk a little bit about your background. One of the things that, that you're, you've written this book, and we'll, I want to get to it because it's the, there's a lot of topics, the college thing this week, and everything else. But you were a prof- you're a teacher of journalism, which right. I love, and I've been to your class. Talk about how you got to do that. You've done it for like 412 years or something like that. But you've been there for a long time. At Explain where you are. Yes. So I was started in 1984 mm-hmm. at Palo Alto High School. Right. The reason I became a teacher is because it was too far for me to drive from Palo Alto to San Francisco to be a reporter. Oh, okay. So you want to be a journalist. So I, I'm, I was bo- I'm born a journalist. Mm-hmm. I started when I was 14 mm-hmm. at a local high school. Uh-huh. Oh, no. Local 
newspaper. Newspaper. Yes. Um, and so you did that, and you did you practice? Do you practice journalism? Yes. I what did, did. You, to explain what you did? So I worked for the Los Angeles Times. Mm-hmm. I wrote a column about teenage life when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And then I what also, were teens doing then, Esther? Um, nothing as exciting as they're doing now, to be <laughs> honest. It was kind of boring. What was one of I, your columns? Well, one of my columns was about what they what teens are thinking today mm-hmm. or what they were thinking back then. And any uh, any thoughts do you remember? Um they were trying to do a lot of the same things they are today, get out from under the control of their parents. Right, which we're going to talk about. Yes, okay. which we're going to, but that, right. that was the main thing. And, All right. and they were talking about a lot about dances, which mm-hmm. are kind of boring today. Yes, they don't do My kids no. refuse to go to dances. It's like the worst thing you could mend. I'm like, well, that sounds fun. They're like, go away, mom. Anyway, uh, so you, you did that, and then you taught, how did you get to Palo Alto High School? By the way, this is a school that a lot of tech people go to. Uh, they go to all the private schools in the area, too, but there's a lot of tech parents um, at Palo Alto High School. Yes, a lot of yeah. tech parents. Yeah. So one of them, for example, was Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. and his daughter was in my class. Right, Lisa. okay. Right, Brennan Jobs, and, so, and lots of them. So, what did you tell me about your teaching? What, what you were, why you decided to do that? Teach journalism. Well, I decided it was just I had three kids, small mm-hmm. kids, and I thought, well, these are the do- I, your daughters, my daughters, mm-hmm. and so I couldn't travel easily to San Francisco because that what was required back then. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, if I can't be a journalist, why not just teach journalism? Right. And so I applied to the school district and. Um, the program was really small. There were only 19 kids at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, this is perfect. I have the perfect schedule. Go to school when they go to school, get out when they get out. And not only that, same vacations. Did they go to Pat? They went to the school. No, they went to Cun. Oh, did they? Oh, yes. Which is nearby. That's another nearby, pro- public yes. school. Yes. Unfortunately, they could not get into Pali because they were getting ready to close one of the schools. This population was really small. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't allow any new kids into Pally, so they went to the nearby other. They went to the school. nearby school, which so, turned out to which be is a great good. school. Which yeah. is a great school. So all the public schools down in Silicon Valley are quite strong. Right. There's other issues, you know, about pressure and things like that. Yeah. Like there are many, but they're certainly fantastic public schools. So you did that for for you started. What was your theory of teaching journalism back then? Well, in initially, what well, my my theory was well, first of all. They told me what to do all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a new teacher, they give you the book, they give you the students, and they're like, make them learn it. Mm-hmm. And so teach I've, the book. Teach the book. Mm-hmm. Give them a test on Friday. Make sure they know what they're doing according mm-hmm. to the book. So um, I did that for about a year, a little more, at which point I realized my students weren't learning anything. Mm-hmm. And so the question is like, what am I going to do? Oh, maybe I should just quit. You mm-hmm. know, this is ridiculous. Or, you know, The other alternative was maybe get a therapist to help Mm me, Mm -hmm. or I could just throw away the curriculum. Right, which you famously did. I did. I threw out the curriculum and decided that I was going to put a lot of control in the hands of the students. This, back in 1984-85, was considered heresy. Right. No one did that. Mm -hmm. Students were always controlled, always sitting in rows, always listening, no talking except to the teacher. So tell me, explain to me what you did, what what you were teaching, how you decided to teach journalism back then. Well, I decided that the most effective way was to have them collaborate and work on the the different parts of the paper themselves Mm -hmm. because it was actually their paper and they should not just be writing about my ideas, they should be writing about their ideas. Mm -hmm. So I put them in groups 
and had them work on ideas that they thought were important and had them do the layout and the design and all the things. And um, turns out it worked really well. And the word spread around the school. So I went from the initial 19 kids in the program to 30, and then from 30 to 50, and then mm-hmm. from 50 to 70. I kept growing and growing and growing. And then, of course, the administration wanted to know what I was doing in that class. I right. Mean, what are you giving those kids? Free pizza or something? <laughs> and so, no, it turns out I was giving them freedom. That freedom. was the key. To do that. And, and do journalism. To, and to do learn journalism. journalism by doing journalism. Right. Right, because then they had an audience for their ideas, and nowhere else were they getting an audience for their ideas. Mm-hmm. So I legitimized giving students control and an audience for their ideas. So you, when you did that, you it was it was unusual. It wasn't. I was in Colombia during that time around around that, and I just was during Colombia, and it was it, it was a lot of book learning at the time. I remember there was some doing, but there was not as much doing as you might imagine, which was interesting to me. And I hated school. I didn't like school. And in my journalism classes in in college, they just weren't doing. They weren't making. Like, I think of journalism as making. So what I did is I threw away the textbook, Mm -hmm. and instead, you know how they give away free papers? Mm -hmm. You know, um, they have like a little stack of free papers? Well, so I just want to tell you what I did in the mornings. I went and took the whole stack, Mm -hmm. and then I passed them out in my class. Mm -hmm. So the advantage was the kids were reading real newspaper. That was the model for how to do it. So I said, okay, we're reading news today. Let's look at the news stories. Let's how they Im- put them together. Let's look at how they put them together. Why don't we see whether you can do the same thing? Mm-hmm. Oh, the kids all thought it was great. They loved reading the newspapers. And there was no problem whatsoever. There was no memorization. It was just doing. Can you replicate what you see there. Right. So we did all the writing styles, you know, features and reviews and sports and uh, opinion and editorial, everything. And the name you had with Wash, right? You're the uh, Wash. Well, the Wash. Originally, I started with my name. Right. And then I had <laughs> my first editor who uh-huh. created the name Wodge. Yeah. And after that, that was over. You yeah. know, everybody in the school called me Wodge. Well, that's what everyone says. Do you know the Wodge? Like, the Wodge. You had a That's the. right. If, my email initially was the Wodge at Hotmail. Yeah. Then, unfortunately, that uh, account got hacked. Uh-huh. So it just became Wodge at Gmail. Right, right which and, is a good idea since your daughter is one of the key executives at uh, Google for many of the early years and now she runs YouTube. So one of the things about journalism is you also morphed and changed. You also morphed and changed. I morphed and changed dramatically. Talk Be- about that because one of the things you did, I remember going to the party where you bi- where you had built this building. You got this building built at Palo Alto High School that literally is nicer than any journalism place I've ever worked. I was like, I want to work here with all kinds <laughs> of bells and whistles and studios and everything else. And I, I think it was like Larry and Sergey were at the opening along with John Doerr and all these. I was like, hey, guys, this is like regular journalists would like to work in, under these conditions. But you were providing this amazing building to the students. Right. So that opened about four years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, before that, I was in a portable. Yeah, you were. I remember yes. I visited you in the portable. That's right. And um, turns out you can build the program in any kind of facility. Mm-hmm. You don't need to necessarily have a wonderful building like I have. Mm-hmm. It worked really well in the portable. Actually, as the program grew, they just added portables, mm-hmm. more portables, more places. And uh, when I wanted the kids to interact with each other, I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I now have 80 kids, and they can't all be in the same place at the same time. What am I gonna do? 
So I went out and I bought a lot of walkie-talkies. Mm-hmm. So the kids all carried walkie-talkies around, and they felt very important mm-hmm. talking to each other on the walkie-talkies. All right. So what, what did you make then? You made newspapers? What are the things Back you created? Then, Back I made then, it was newspapers. newspapers mm-hmm. And then in 2000, I created—no, um, first in 1998, I created a website. Right, which and was then, unusual. Which was—oh, my God, it was so unusual mm-hmm. because at that point— the school board was like, you cannot take pictures of students. Mm-hmm. You know, the only thing you can do is take a picture of the back of their head. Okay. And so we had to have a little discussion. At some point, you know, they came around. Mm-hmm. Um, but people were kind of afraid. Then in 2000, I created a magazine called Verde. And it was a news sort of literary sort of magazine. And... Um, Within the first year, we did it four times in the first year, and the administration was like, magazines? Students students don't do magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, high schools don't have magazines. Mm-hmm. This is never going to work. So um, I did it in the back of my class with another group. Well, the first year, we won a gold crown from Columbia. Mm-hmm. That was extremely helpful. Thank you so much to Columbia. Mm-hmm. They then allowed me to hire a teacher. So you did that. You did magazines, websites. You have a TV studio now, right? You, and yes. radio and podcasting. Yes, all of them. Podcasting, radio, television, magazines, newspapers. We also make our own movies and videos and we post to— But with an orientation toward the Internet, too, a very heavy orientation. Very heavy orientation. The idea is to teach kids how to use the Internet intelligently. Mm-hmm. And also, in doing so, they learn how to— not be fooled by fake news because they know what a resource is mm-hmm. and they know what it looks like to put together a right, a correct story. And and right now, you have how many students? How- well, there's uh, seven other teachers and there's about 700 students. In the program, which In is the amazing. Program. And what is your theory of journalism now? And then I want to get to your how you decided to do this book. My theory of journalism is that we are now— Teaching this, journalism. Teaching journalism. Journalism is the way to teach kids to think. Mm -hmm. It is the number one way. And journalists have these skills. They collect information. They try to sort through it and figure out what's most important. Then they have to write about it in a way that makes other people want to read it. Mm -hmm. And then they have to use these tools to publish. If everybody could get information and figure out what's most important, it would change the world. Mm-hmm. Right now, they just have a lot of information and they can't figure out what's most important. Sure. So it's training for kids on like thinking skills, critical thinking, creativity, communication, and collaboration, the number one skills kids need for the 21st century. And where do you think the state of journalism is right now? It's under assault, obviously. Oh, and part of it assault. has to do with Google and Facebook and everything else, like right. that, that, that it's so confusing as to what is good and what is not. Right. But if all kids have opportunity to be trained in media literacy, literary, media literacy yeah. they will then be able to make these decisions and act intelligently. I don't care whether they're doctors or lawyers or professors or, you know, gardeners, whatever. They need these skills. They need these skills. So, but do you worry for them as you're teaching them in this environment, especially with the advent of fake news? And, you know, it, it those, those again, those things proliferated because of the Internet and, right. and things that, that you are close to. Right. How do you look at that? How do you combat that, given the massive amount of information? And it's and the Internet companies are having a hard time dealing with it. it. You know, to be the kindest, it's overwhelming. To be unkind, they haven't been watching it very carefully. It, they haven't been. But, you know, the number one people that are tricked by the fake news mm-hmm. are people over 50. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that share all the fake stories. Mm-hmm. And they have had no training in the Internet. So the younger kids 
they're more suspicious because they've been trained, well, especially kids in my program. Mm-hmm. They've been trained. So they are very careful before they share anything. And I've been working with the museum in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. They have a whole program on should you share this or not? Right. What That's is closing, real? Though, right? The museum is closing. Well, the museum, the building is closing, but the website okay. will still remain. Right. So you can still go online so to for museum. Media, and I know yeah. Walt Mossberg's working on a media literacy project, too. They're all, there's a lot of stuff going on around that idea of teaching, especially young people, this. Right. I think it should be required. It should be part of the civics curriculum. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Is you know, there a civics curriculum anymore? Oh, uh, well, there was. <laughs> the civics curriculum <laughs> oh, it's so needs nice. civics. to come. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. Oh, by the way, you know the reason I sound so sexy? Yeah, why? Well, I just am getting over laryngitis. Okay, all right. I okay. normally don't have yeah, such right, a so sexy voice. voice. Okay, Esther. Uh, uh, thank you for clarifying that for our <laughs> listeners. All right, so then you decided to write this book because you're, what besides being famous in Palatize among students, because everybody's been taught by the Waj. Yes. Um, is and again, I loved visiting your class. Your students were incredibly engaged and, and had great ideas, and really gave me a hard time, which I liked, um, and in a good way, in a really smart way. Um, was that uh, that you are the, you've written this book, and it's called um, the book is called How to Raise Successful People: Simple Lessons for Radical Results. You have three children that are very successful, like unusually. <laughs> I mean, I, w- I was going to call you mother of dragons, essentially, <laughs> but internet dragons, essentially, or, 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 or very successful people. Talk to me about why you decided to write this book besides the fact that you have these amazingly successful daughters. Well, I wrote it because not only are my daughters really successful, my students are also extremely successful. Mm-hmm. And I keep getting these emails from them um, or letters or Christmas cards or whatever telling me that what I did changed their life. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, gee, if it's so impactful for everybody, maybe mm-hmm. I should share that with mm-hmm. the whole world. Mm-hmm. And the question I always ask them, so what did I do that made such right. a did difference? Did you not know? What are you like? No, I didn't know. A savant, I did idiot not savant. No. All right. And they all said to me, you trust us. And I said, well, is that a big deal? Mm-hmm. And it turns out it's a very big deal. All right. Okay, so we're going to talk about that when we get back with her about her book called How to Raise Successful People, Simple Lessons for Radical Results. We're here with Esther Wojcicki, who is a journalism professor, just an all-around. Are you a gadfly of Silicon Valley? Uh, yes, of, I would kind say of I'm a little gadfly. Yeah, yeah. all right. We'll talk Maybe more when bigger. we get back. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
We're here with Esther Wojcicki. She's the author of How to Raise Successful People. She's also a very well-known journalism professor at a high school, a very a big high school in Silicon Valley. And she's also the mother of several key internet executives, Anne Wojcicki of 23andMe, and Susan Wojcicki, the CEO of YouTube. Her other daughter is also a well-known epidemiologist in, in San Francisco. Um, this book, so you were you, you were also talking about your students and, and stuff, but let's let's focus on your daughters because one people do note that. You have these, I think even on the book here, it's like super daughter or whatever, super superstar daughters, um, and said shares her tried and tested methods for raising happy, healthy, successful children using trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness, which you called trick. Right. Talk about that. Trick, It's turns out it's really important, and of course I learned this from my students who told me about it. Mm-hmm. So what happens is when you trust a student, all of a sudden they realize that they can trust themselves mm-hmm. and they're willing to take a risk mm-hmm. and willing to do things that they might not otherwise have been willing to do. Right. So that's what I did with my children. I trusted them early on. How does that manifest itself? We're going to go through each of these. How does trust manifest? What does that mean? So that means you give them opportunities to do things actually around the house. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not a servant. They're they're part of the family. Mm-hmm. So they do things like, you know, Susan was busy folding diapers at the age of two. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she was taking care of Janet when she was three. Mm-hmm. Taking care of means that I was nearby, but she was responsible for entertaining her and making sure she didn't cry and things like that. They worked with me in many ways. And then also, I trusted them to go places by themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they would go next door by themselves. Right, that you lived sounds, in Palo Alto. I live on Stanford campus. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And then they would go— That's right, your husband, just to be—not to leave him out of the picture. He's a very famous physicist. That's right. Professor of physics at Stanford. Yes, quite a big name. He's a big deal. A big deal. And so they would go next door to play with other kids or play with the—visit the neighbors. We had some very helpful, wonderful neighbors. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, Or they would go to the swim club by themselves. They all learned to swim really early. Mm -hmm. They learned to ride a bike really early. They learned to read early because I wanted them to read street signs. Mm -hmm. And I wanted them to be as independent as they could be at the age. So this is respect and independence. This is respect and independence. And so meaning that a lot of—you were talking about—you were saying this is the opposite of helicopter— parenting. Absolute opposite. I trusted them to do what I thought was important. And for example, when they were 11 and 12, Susan and Janet flew to France by themselves, going through JFK, transferring by themselves. Mm-hmm. Most parents would be like, oh. Most parents would be freaked out yeah. by this. Of course, well, actually airports are even safer today than they mm-hmm. were back then. Mm-hmm. But they made it. There was no problem. Of course, they complained that it was a little difficult, but right. they did it. Right, right. And so by doing that, they believed in themselves that they could do anything. Right, that they could go around. And so what happens is when parents today do so much for their kids, the kids feel they cannot do anything without the parents' help. Right, exactly. So they, they feel, feel dependent on it. They feel dependent. Yeah. And I mean, that continues all the way through college where the kid just doesn't feel empowered to do it without somebody there telling them whether they're doing it right or wrong Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and instead of they themselves. So in my program, what I do is I give kids so much independence Mm -hmm. that by the time they're done with being with me for two years— they are really empowered. They and then feel the they respect can, part is not calling them idiots if the they make mistakes. The respect part is, I'll tell you, some of the ideas they come up with are 
I mean, wacky is right. hot. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other day my kid was like, there's no bad ideas. I go, there are. <laughs> there are and bad. that one was one. Yes. Yeah. But I don't say it. It's right. interesting. Right. I let those bad ideas surface. Mm-hmm. I let them bat those ideas around. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, 95% of the time, they have rejected on their own those bad ideas. Mm-hmm. As they go through. As so they respecting go through, their process. Look at, right. The process of talking to each other and trying to understand why things are the way they are and they they have come up with amazingly mature decisions by going through the process on their own. And then collaboration. Cla- well, try to put a newspaper together by yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a 24 to 28 page full-size newspaper. You can do that. <laughs> well, it's as big Teamwork. as the New York Times. Right. And so try to put that all together. You don't have mm-hmm. to put advertisements and pictures, and every page has at least four stories, maybe five stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got to coordinate everything, so you must collaborate with the kids. And with every, they all have to collaborate with each other. There's like 50 kids all working together. They don't and how all did it manifest it? itself with your kids? Is that they... Oh, my kids. Yes, they all had to work together, too. Right. That was, you know, that was... I mean, my kids were not abnormal. They mm-hmm. fought with each other, too. Mm-hmm. There was constant battle about this and that. Janet wanted Susan to wear this clothes. Janet, Susan wanted Janet to wear that. Mm-hmm. You know, they were stealing clothes out of each other's Anne closet. Doing this whole time? Oh, poor Anne. <laughs> well, um, Janet Sam locked— the baby? Anne's, Anne's baby. Right. Yeah, they, Janet locked Anne in the closet. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's after deciding on which clothes to wear, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, Anne kind of watched the whole thing and then participated when it was effective. Anne became the diplomat in the whole family. Right. But, I mean, they made a lot of decisions about, like, where we should go on the weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, what should we be eating tonight? What kind of food did they think was good? Did they want to help pick the the food for the restaurant? Mm -hmm. Uh, They made a lot of choices. Mm -hmm. And... um, they also made a lot of choice about what classes they wanted to take and what activities they wanted to do in the summer. I, I didn't force them to do things. So they had to collaborate together. And then kindness, which was, the, I oh, think, the last one, the K. Kindness, kindness is the key. Kindness and love. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. All kids need to feel that the teacher is kind. Mm-hmm. And um, if you do a survey of most students in most schools, they will tell you there's no kindness in the school. And so... In my classes, I try to be kind. Everyone makes mistakes. And so I give them an opportunity to rectify those mistakes. And most of the time, my opportunity to rectify the mistakes is that you have to stay after school with me. And you have to write an an essay about what it was that you did that created problems. Mm -hmm. And then you have to rethink it. And then I bring the kids together, whoever, you know, created problems for the other kid, to talk about it. I believe in discussion and being forgiven. Carrying grudges just makes everybody angry and bitter, and then mm-hmm. you get sick. Right. And so I'm. it works so well. I mean, the kids all get along. Right. And these are kids, half my kids are from immigrant families. And your own children seem to really get along really well. It's really quite remarkable. The, all the three of my kids get along really well. People, when they look at your family, you get, you, as a group, you get awards together because, you know, I think what they first focus on is the accomplishment. I mean, the enormous wealth they've created, the success they've had, and things like that. How do you deal with that as a group of people? Because, you know, you look like someone who's raised really, and especially daughters, because it's much harder, I think, to raise daughters in this environment, especially in a tough environment like Silicon Valley and 
and and other and in medicine too. Right. So the the goal is you know to always talk about any kind of problem you have. Mm-hmm. Be open for it. Don't carry grudges. And, um, you know, we're here to support each other. And that's part of what governs my family and mm-hmm. governs the kids and governs everything that's part of it. Um, all three of my daughters are, are great friends with each other. And mm-hmm. as you can imagine, in families, people get mad at each other. And I think one of the number one problems is that they get mad and then they stay mad and then they don't work it out. Mm-hmm. And as long as that goes on, what you're doing, the person that carries the anger, is you are totally stressed. Mm-hmm. And then you get, I'm sorry, the stress really impacts you for life. So in that way, these ideas that you're talking about have gotten further and further away from uh, from us, in, especially in this age, and you were kind of, you called it helicopter pandering, and I want to get to two issues: this college admissions thing that just happened, and also the 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 way the internet culture diminishes people constantly. Like it, it's it's not been a positive influence of late. It's talked about it, but first, when the idea of this uh, of creating these superstar children, that's what everybody wants to do. Like right. that's what you know. That's what they have they, via achievement, and obviously your kids have achieved a lot of achievement. Um, is that over-indexing when it comes to your kids and stuff like that? Is that bothersome for you that, like, oh, we have these superstar daughters? or, or You know, I never, never, ever expected them to do what they're doing, mm-hmm. ever. I just wanted them to be happy in whatever it was they decided to do. Right. So I was not on, on the road of this is what you have to do. They fell into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Susan, for example, she majored in French and English history and lit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I what do you do that. with that? Right. You know, speak and, French, right? Speak French, very useful. Well, actually, I love France, so it is useful <laughs> in France. Janet, she majored in anthropology and international relations. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that? Right. And then, well, Anne was more practical. She majored in biology. Okay, so she knew she wanted to do something connected with the human body. At least that, you know. Right. But they didn't have any idea of what they were really doing, and. When they were growing up, I tried to make it clear you can do anything you want to do. So you weren't pressury. No, right. I was. I, the only thing is, I wanted them to be independent. Mm-hmm. My biggest pressure was independence. I want you to do whatever it is you want to do, and you know, I I made it really clear it didn't matter whether you were a girl or a boy. Mm-hmm. They, you know, you could do it. Though it does matter if you're no, a No, but I said no, to said them. You said it doesn't matter, but yeah, it does. So I, how did you, you know, jump that? So dump? I said, if if there's a problem, you know, if there's some kind of discrimination, and there was a lot of discrimination on Wall Street mm-hmm. when Anne was working there, I said, you know, you're just going to have to cope with it and laugh it off and keep moving forward. Look at your goal. Follow where you want to go. Don't get diverted by, you know, this thing happened and that thing happened and carrying grudges against Mm -hmm. this one and that one. Just work on, this is my goal. She was head of a biotech fund, Mm -hmm. and her goal was, can I make that biotech fund the best it can be? And, of course, along the way, there were all these people that were creating problems for her. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you don't carry animosity, then you can actually achieve your goal. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the main thing that that happened. So there are her. systematic things in place for many people. That, like here in Silicon Valley, it's really stacked up against women, for example. Well, it was stacked up against me. When I first started as a reporter, mm-hmm. I could not get into the San Francisco Press Club because mm-hmm. women weren't allowed. Mm-hmm. And so it was 
pretty pretty awful. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of things like that stacked up against Susan and against Janet and against Anne. And you just have to persist. And you have to show people in the room that you are the best at doing that. Mm-hmm. And, okay, well, maybe there were some issues, you know, male-female issues, but we're going to work on the project. We're going to work on where we're going and not get diverted by all the other stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. Because if you get diverted, then then you lose focus of where you're going. Right, right. Although, you know, it's hard. It's sometimes hard. Not everybody it has hard. the perseverance. It is really hard. Right. And, you know, so I'm, I think the Me Too movement has been fantastic for helping women. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some cases, it's been a little too strong. As some men have had problems when maybe they have, they've been tried by the press mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, some of the things that they might have actually done. Um, so I think we're going to come to an equilibrium. You know, this is how it starts. This is how it works. And um, so Susan, as, you know, the leader in many cases mm-hmm. uh, in the room, mm-hmm. as the woman, one of the only women that started— She's one of the highest-ranking women in Silicon. I think right. she's probably— I think like she's, two or three. Right. She focused on what she was doing and not on, on all the stuff that was happening around on the other side. Yeah. All right. When we get back, we're going to talk more. That's Rajiski. I do want to talk about what's happening now this week with the college admissions thing because it's, it's the exact opposite of what you're talking about. And when we get back, we'll talk about that. We're here with Esther Rajiski. She's the author of a new book called How to Raise Successful People. She's also a very well-known journalism uh, teacher in Silicon Valley, a very prominent high school, and also works a lot on education uh, issues uh, going forward. And we want to talk about that, too, when we get back. We're back here with Esther Wojcicki. She's the author of How to Raise Successful People, and she certainly has raised some successful people, uh, her children, and also students at Palo Alto High School. We are talking ahead. Your book gets out later. We're talking ahead of what's happening this week is this college admissions scandal where all these—this is exactly the kind of thing you're talking against in the book. Can you talk a little bit of, like, when this popped up, what did you think? Because this is people facilitating their children to get into things by cheating, essentially, and not trusting them and not giving them independence and, you know— handling them in ways that are disturbing, to say the least. Can you—I'd love to get your thoughts on that. This college cheating scandal is just the ultimate helicopter parenting. Mm -hmm. So the people that are participating in this, let's just ask yourself, why are they doing that? They're doing this because they don't trust and believe and respect their kids. Mm -hmm. They think their kids by themselves, on their own, will not be able to make it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the kids weren't even aware that their parents were doing this, but their parents were paying to make sure that they got into the college right. of their choice, their being the parents' choice. Right. Right. So how does how does that child? So feel? how does it happen? You say this. It's like the, there's parental anxiety. It's, it starts with parental anxiety over achievement. Um, and or lack thereof. It's because parents think there's a very narrow path to success. Mm-hmm. And if they don't follow that narrow path to success, the kid will fail. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of, there's a book written about how to raise an adult. And it talks a lot about one of the problems they see happening at Stanford, which is parents whose kids actually even get into Stanford. They move to Palo Alto to be next to their kids, to help what? them in their classes. Oh, man, the minute my case, kid goes to college, I'm goodbye. See in ya. case Good luck. they need some help. <laughs> and some of the Stanford professors have even complained uh-huh. that when a kid does poorly in the class, the parent calls up. 
What, what is this all about? Yeah. This is helicopter parenting to the extreme. Yeah. And the number one thing kids say, the number one problem is they say, I feel like I am not in control. I don't have control of my life. And that's why so many kids are depressed. Right, right. And taking all these, you know, bad things right. because yeah. they are emotionally upset. There is no control. They have no control. So that's a really important part is this idea of, of having control over this. Do you, do you, were you surprised by, these scan, by this scandal? Actually, I wasn't surprised I, because I've seen so much helicopter parenting. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there's even been part of this scandal is at Palo Alto High School. Right. Right. And, so talk um, about that because there's been a bunch of tech people. The, the focus was on a lot of these celebrities, which is interesting to the, the public at large. But there's been quite a few tech people in this. And, and the pressures are enormous, these tech people. They're wealthy. They want their kids to achieve, obviously. They're willing to pay for it. Yeah. They're willing to pay for you to get your child into that college. And I think that is, what does that say to the kid? It says to the kid, well, without me, you can't be successful. You know, these people, maybe they do not want to be a tech person when they grow up. Maybe they want to do something, maybe an artist, or maybe they want to be an actor. Maybe mm-hmm. they want, there's so many other things. These people they should have the right, these young people, to do what it is they want to do in life. Mm-hmm. And if they don't want to live a life of supreme wealth, they don't have to. I mean, all the studies show that being really wealthy does not lead to happiness. Mm-hmm. So why are we pushing all this stuff? Can we help these kids lead the life that they want to lead? Is that very different? Like, you are in an area of the country that's high pressure. This, I mean, there's tech people that are so go, go, go and so aggressive. Can you talk about how you deal with that, like, on a, on as b- being a teacher and also par- raising kids here? Well, so as a teacher, I talk to my students about how important it is for them to be who they want to be. And even though their parents might not agree with what their choice of career is. And I say, and my students feel very, they're happy about that, let me tell you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then also I talk to parents about that as well. I mean, the misconception that we have actually worldwide, is that consumer goods lead to happiness. Mm -hmm. And that is not true. What leads to happiness is relationships, being in a supportive community. If you look at these blue zones around the world where people live the longest, Mm -hmm. they live the longest in areas where there is a lot of support and a sense of community, not a lot of wealth. So let your kid be what they want to be. Well, how do you deal with it then? I mean, you have very wealthy children. You have very well. You operate in a very wealthy environment. You hang with very wealthy people. How do you, you know? So we make it really. We don't give our kids a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. They all have to go to work mm-hmm. when they're thirteen or fourteen. They work and they get jobs and they do things. They are not given a large allowance. They are not given cars when, you know, you should be able to buy your car. They have to do a lot of work around the house. Mm-hmm. They're they're part of the community of the family. Right. They're not considered, um, you know, we're not the servants and they're the little um, princes and princesses. Right, right, right. So I think it's important for them to realize that they also they have to give back to society. They have to help other people. They They do a lot of donating time and energy. My oldest grandson worked... He's 17. He worked as a cook in a camp all summer long while he was 17. He could have done something else. Mm-hmm. And the, my young, uh, the second oldest grandchild, 
She's working on climate issues. Mm -hmm. And she is not working on, like, can I be the most beautiful? Can I hang out with the most, with the richest richest people? I think you get a lot of satisfaction in life from helping other people. Mm -hmm. That's where the satisfaction comes from. That's where my satisfaction is. But how difficult is that? Like, really, truly. I mean, you've got now grandchildren that are part of this. And, you know, you all live really beautifully. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you do. Although your house isn't very fancy, if I remember. No, my house is just normal. It and really I did is. not move to a fancy <laughs> I house. I know. I went to your house once. I, w- I had to go to this party uh, and I, I was like, oh, yay, it's going to be a fancy party at a rich person's house. And I got there. I'm like, this isn't that nice. Like, it's a nice house. It's a really <laughs> lovely house. But I was like, and you had like food from Safeway. And so I loved it. I was like, oh, my God, this is so good. That's right. Yeah. I'm just an ordinary person. Right. I just don't want to be part of this crazy, fancy house, big whatever. Right. Because I don't think that's where the happiness comes from. So how do you, how do, besides the wealth part of it, it's your kids and your, your son-in-laws and everyone else has been part of like the growth of the internet. Right. And some people feel this is corrosive to kids. How do you look at that? Because, you know, I worry about my kids and YouTube. I worry a lot about YouTube. I worry about like what they're seeing and how it's being monitored and things like that. I worry about Facebook. I worry about Instagram, Twitter, all these things. You know, and, not, and just video games. So I think a lot about the prevalence of on, always online. Now, luckily, my kids really aren't that. They don't spend a lot of time in there. They do Snapchat. They try to keep away from a lot of sharing and stuff like that. And they don't, they don't, they don't embrace it as much, which is fine. That's their choice. How do you look at that the, the, when you're teaching kids and also your grandchildren and your, and, your, and your own kids are part of the creators of this? How do you look at that? So I think kids need to be taught. Mm-hmm. And not it, the device should not be banned. Mm-hmm. It should be taught. How do you use your device intelligently? Mm-hmm. They need to ex- understand, like, what are the risks and what are the benefits? And it's just like anything in life that you ban. I mean, how effective were we when we banned alcohol mm-hmm. prohibition? It didn't work. Right. And how effective are we today when we ban drugs? Mm-hmm. doesn't work. And so if you take your kid's phone away and then don't explain to them why and let them self-control, let them manage some of this themselves, they don't learn the skills you want them to learn. So with my grandchildren, that's exactly what they do. They have certain times when they work on or they get to play on the Internet, Mm -hmm. but they can't be on it all the time. And they have to understand how it works and what are the good sites, what are the bad sites, what are problems with it, what are dysfunction with it. And they need to understand that everybody on the Internet might look happy, especially on Facebook, Mm -hmm. but let me tell you, or Instagram, they are not happy. Mm -hmm. You know, they're posting that. it's performative. I call it a performative. My kid calls it a museum, and I call it a performative. It is a performative. It's like you put together those pictures showing how happy you are, Mm -hmm. but they're fake in many cases. You know, maybe you aren't that happy. You're just posting it. Mm -hmm. And so how do you, on the whole, how do you assess the impact of the Internet? Has it been a good thing? Right now, we're in a phase where everybody hates tech, and I've been tough on tech, as you know, uh, which I think you like. Yes, (laughs) I I do. Um, how do you assess it? I mean, I think I'm being fairly critical. Like, I'm trying to be fairly critical about, and I want the people of tech who are in power to start thinking about what they've done and how to do it better. Right. Um, if you overall had to assess tech, how would you right now compared to where it's going and how it started? It started off with such great promise. It was going to be like Star Trek every day of the week and twice on Sundays. I think it's—I'm I'm, going to agree with you quite mm-hmm. a bit because I think— there has been a lot of negative stuff 
associated with that with tech. I think one of the biggest problems has been um, Twitter mm-hmm. and how people can just post any crazy thing they want to on Twitter, mm-hmm. and then other people who don't know better share it. Right, and uh, that creates a lot of problems. I think the news, while we have tried to give everybody an opportunity to share the news, and on YouTube, it's got everybody an opportunity to be a video creator, right. which is like fantastic, but it's also brought out some of the worst, mm-hmm. worst in human beings. And so the question is, how do we control that? Right. And uh, I don't have the answer. I wish I had the answer on Why how to do it. Why do you think it got like that? I mean, what do you say, like, I had just recently interviewed Susan, and we talked really about stuff that's going on in YouTube and the, the ability to find really awful things too quickly and the ability not to get rid of fake things and to and how you go down this wormhole really rather quickly from normal places like from from places where you don't think that that's going to happen and it's not just youtube it's it, it's uh, it's facebook obviously and it's other places it's instagram it's instagram it's other places and twitter obviously like you just said what can we do in this instance? And how do you, do you, does this tech need to be regulated? Do you have to get these people to think more strongly about their platforms and it's not just a free-for-all? Or how do you do that? Because it does affect how kids think of themselves. It does affect our society. I think it's a major issue. And I think it's something that we all have to work out. I do think there have to be more controls. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the government should control it. I think we should talk to the companies. Well, self-regulation hasn't worked Self-regulation. So well. Hasn't worked. Well, we, they need to try again. Mm-hmm. They need to, you know, they need to take it more seriously and figure out how they're going to do the self-regulation. Why because haven't they... the biggest threat will be the government to take over. If really? the government, well, don't you think no, so? No, because I think the government did very well with Microsoft. I think they did well with AT&T. I think when the government does intervene correctly, it, it brings, it, it, it opens things up. And I think self-regulation has not worked with these people at all. And I don't, I don't understand why it would again. Now they really are sorry. I, you know what I mean? Like, right. you know, I don't know. Like, sorry, so sorry for the fake news. So sorry for the intervention so far. Sorry for the bots. So sorry for the ultimately. And now it's sort of, it's so hard. And that's not really an excuse anymore. I feel. Like. I feel. I feel like they're media platforms. All of them. Every one of them. I don't know if you think. No, the they same. are media platforms. Yeah. All of them. Right. And um, so they have the responsibility to, to monitor them in ways. And what they tend to do is say, free, free speech, free speech. I'm like, sure, but some of this is fake. Some of this is damaging. Some of this, you've got to watch it more carefully. Right. You know, I don't want to end up like China. Right. right? Of course. And um, on the other hand, I don't want to let the free-for-all going mm-hmm. where it's continuing to go. They call it the purge. The purge, right. <laughs> so I think there needs to be a happy medium in mm-hmm. here. And I, I think that all the players have to be consulted and they have to work together. I think it's much easier to control people when they have an input mm-hmm. of some kind of self-control. So if it's they... what you're saying in the book. Like, right. <laughs> should we trust them? How, how to raise successful internet people? Well, but, <laughs> how do we do that? Trick? But I just think about in my classes, when they come up with the rules for how to control the class, mm-hmm. then I don't have to monitor it. Mm-hmm. So these internet companies, if they can come up with rules that the government and that everybody agrees with that are going to work, then you don't have to monitor so much because they've come up with the rules. And they've come up with how to change it. They're all upset, too. They don't want to see what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know Facebook is is the number one target here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, I have a lot, a big following on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And um, I, 
I am sure that I, I read this unfortunate thing about more fake medical news mm-hmm. on Facebook the than vaccine. anywhere else. Yeah, the anti-vax. And um, so we need to we need to monitor and regulate this. And I don't know the answer, but I do right. think discussion and bringing them all together is going to be one of the ways to start. Well, let's hope. You you have more. I, I like them personally, but I think they've done a terrible job in doing it. And I'd like someone— Well, the question is maybe we should give them a deadline. What do you think? Um, no. I no? think we should just— Drop the bomb. Like, just say, just say immunity no more. Now fix, like, you'll be fined. You know, oh. ultimately. I know you don't like fines. No, 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 no. I, do. I don't know. Well, I don't know what to do with Facebook and this whole anti vax thing. Yeah, yeah. Can you believe that? No, I, on Twitter that, too. It's just, it's it terrible. is. So let's get back to journalism, finish up on journalism. We only have a few minutes. Where do you see the state of journalism going? Because you have all this stuff, this information that just on every topic, not just va- anti vaxxing, but whatever right. topic it is, and these platforms that allow unfettered ability to communicate. Where do you see the state? If you could finish up just very quickly talking about the state of journalism and how you think about your students going into the next era. So first of all, you know, Thomas Jefferson said, as you know, you can't have a really good democracy without a good press. Mm -hmm. And so without having a a really good press, we're going to have a lot of problems with democracy. Mm -hmm. And so what we have to do is take a look at what is happening in the tech world that might be interfering with this. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of interference because it's fake. A lot of fake stuff. People are making decisions based on that. So um, I think that one of the keys to changing the next generation is education. There, Because otherwise you're going to create all these bots. Bot, and then the other bot gets rid of this bot, and the bots start fighting with mm-hmm. each other. But, you know, human beings still have the advantage of a brain. And if they are For aware, now, well, we hope so. <laughs> uh, but anyway... If you can train them to think this way, they won't be so easily fooled. Mm -hmm. Kids need to be trained. This is the age of media. This is the digital age. Where in the curriculum are they being trained for the digital age? Mm -hmm. It has to be in every single school. Media training for all schools. All right. Lastly, what's the most important thing about teaching anyone, your children or anything? Empower the kids. Empower the kids. Make them feel like they are in charge and they're ethical and give them, teach them all the ethical rules. You know, how to respect other people, how to trust other people, how to work together as a team. Nobody can do anything alone. And also, all these people that, people that are ostracized, Let's include them. Let's not ostracize people mm-hmm. for the way they look or for their religion or for their skin color or whatever. Everybody wants to be part of the community. Everybody. All right. And that's a happy thing to end on. Thanks again to Esther Wojcicki for coming on the show. And thanks to you all for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is Hey Hey ESJ. You can find Esther on Twitter at at Esther Wojcicki, that's W-O-J-C-I-C-K-I, or visit her education nonprofit, Global Moonshots, at globalmoonshots.org. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.